Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming to our first event of the spring semester as part of our year-long series, The Thing Is. My name is Trina Hyun, and I'm a graduate student in the English department, as well as one of the co-organizers of the Yale program in the history of the book, along with Andrew Brown, one of our panelists, and Catherine James, who regretfully couldn't be here tonight. Um, so it's my great privilege to introduce our panel chair, um, who will then introduce our speakers and launch our discussion for the evening. Dr. Catherine DeRose is manager of the Digital Humanities Lab here at Yale, where she teaches and consults scholars from various disciplines on data analysis and visualization. She brings an expansive breadth of scholarship to Yale from humanities computing to a specialization in Victorian literature. Dr. DeRose earned her PhD in English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her work has appeared in Victorian Review and Significance. Before coming to Yale, she was involved in DH initiatives at Carnegie Hall and the Folger Shakespeare Library. She has also received grants for her DH work from the American Council of Learned Societies and the New Arts Venture Challenge. I can't think of anything at the DH lab that Catherine isn't involved with, so we're extremely grateful to have her with us as our chair this evening. Please join me in welcoming Catherine DeRose. Thank you so much, Trina, for such a generous introduction, um, and to Trina and Andrew for the invitation to join you all. I'm super excited to be chairing this panel and for the discussion uh, that's about to unfold. In terms of um, the layout for today, so we're going to start with brief introductions of our panelists, followed by their opening thoughts, provocations, reflections. Um, they've been asked to think in advance about the intersections of history of the book and digital humanities, or digital media more broadly. In particular, they've been asked to think about how we engage with the materiality of texts in an increasingly digital moment. Do we need to rethink graduate training, institutional support, publishing structures? What might a new history of the book look like in 2019? After their opening remarks, we'll then move toward a more general panel discussion, after which we'll invite questions or responses um, from everyone in the room. So to begin with introductions, Whitney Tratine is an assistant professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, where she researches the history of the book and other text technologies from print to digital. Her work includes publications on textile metaphors and the poetry of Isabella Whitney, digital humanities, and print-on-demand publishing in Milton's Aeropagetica, as well as a recent article in PMLA on the Little Gidding Harmonies. She has co-edited Provoke, a web-based collection of sonic scholarship, the print companion of which, titled Digital Sound Studies, was recently released by Duke University Press. More recently, she has co-developed with Lisa Daly a new web app, Manicule, which helps scholars, curators, and students build digital tours of material texts. Her forthcoming book, Cut, Copy, Paste, which is being staged on the Manifold Scholarship platform through the University of Minnesota Press with support from the Mellon Foundation and an NEH fellowship, identifies three fringe communities that assembled books from fragments of paper media in the 17th century. Through digital methods, Tritine's work places these seemingly idiosyncratic textual practices and their materialist poetics within a broader field of literary production. After Whitney speaks, we'll be followed by Andrew Brown. Andrew S. Brown is a sixth-year PhD candidate in the English department, where he examines how English playwrights from William Shakespeare to John Milton helped to develop the concept of representation, the idea that the words and actions of one person, group, or thing could stand in for those of another with effective social, legal, and political force. His work has appeared in 18th century studies, early theater, the edited collection Shakespeare and Consciousness and Milton Studies, for which he received the Albert C. Labriola Award for a Distinguished Article by a Graduate Student. He also has a forthcoming article in Studies in Philology on Quakerism, Meta Discourse, and Paradise Found. Working at the intersection of the history of the book and the digital humanities, Brown has been an organizer for the Yale program in the history of the book, the Harvard Yale Conference in Book History, and the Digital Humanities Working Group. He was also the recipient of a Digital Humanities Teaching Fellowship, for which he collaborated with the DH Lab to combine literary criticism with distant reading, network visualizations, and GIS mapping. Please join me in welcoming our speakers. Mm -hmm. 
turn things over to Professor Whitney Trittine. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Kathy, and thank you also, um, Andrew and Trina, for your introductions and uh, help with uh, getting here and um, for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Um, it's a real thrill to talk about BH and DH together. Um, so, so thank you. Um, I, I, Andrew suggested that I start by responding to one of the prompts, and the prompt that I chose to respond to was one that asks how we should encounter the codex or the book object in our current moment? And this is a really wide question, right? So I'm gonna do what I would do um, when either I'm trying to start to write something or I'm trying to start to teach something, and that's to begin with an object. And I'm gonna talk for about eight and a half or nine minutes just to give you a, a sense of how long this will take. Um, but in order to get to that object, which is a photograph, I have to lay out some history for you first. So we're in 1980, that's when the photograph was taken. And just to set out some context for us, there was at the time a kind of panic simmering in the popular media about the state of 20th century archival material. So parchment, early papers were thought to be quite stable. If you leave them on a shelf, they'll just continue to sit on a shelf for a long time, right? By contrast, once you get to the 19th century, you have papers made with wood pulp, and of course, to make a paper from wood pulp, you have to pack it with acidic fillers. You have to pack it with alum. And those acidic fillers will slowly deteriorate the paper as it comes into contact with water, which is in the air around us, right? The air is humid, the book comes in contact with the air, it starts to crumble and becomes brittle. So I'm not gonna say whether or not I think this is true, I'm just articulating what's happening in 1980 in this moment, this kind of simmering panic. So suddenly it started to seem to people that the substrate upon which 20th century history had been inscribed was fundamentally unstable, right? And it's not just wood pulp paper, there was mimeographs, thermofaxes, all of these things that were just kind of, seemed to be crumbling to dust in libraries. And it led to a lot of rhetoric that we now see as quite overblown, I think, about the 20th century is gonna be a kind of new dark ages, it was gonna be a gap that future historians would, would not be able to see anything of 20th century materials because they would just crumble to dust before us, right? Um, if you're familiar with Nicholson Baker's book, Double Fold, he talks about this in Double Fold. Um, he also talks about the many projects that were funded to try to solve this problem. Uh, most notoriously, NASA uh, partnered with the Library of Congress to produce these kind of mass space-age deacidification chambers where they would take packs of books from the Library of Congress and shove them into these chambers and pump the chambers with DEZ, which is a chemical that was thought to stabilize the papers in order to prevent these books from becoming brittle. This is a multi-million dollar, like, federally funded project to stabilize the archive, right? <laughs> Lots of rhetoric around this. And that's the context in which the photograph that I want to share with you, oops, sorry, tell me if you can hear me or can't hear me, because we're quite close, so it's fine. Um, the photograph that I want to share with you was actually made, and I don't have a projector, so I, I, I brought props, um, and I'm just gonna step off, I hope it won't do anything with the sound, and just show you this photograph, okay? And what the photograph is, is it's of Peter Waters, who is the head conservator of the Library of Congress, also responsible for a lot of the best standards and practices that we still use in conservation labs today. And he's blowing on a stack of acidified wood pulp paper that has shattered to fragments. And the photographer, Yochi Okamoto, has captured it right at the moment when there's this kind of confetti of, um, of, of fragments in front of his face, right? So it's a really, really striking photograph. And it shows up in many different places. I have two other examples of the photograph here from the 1980s. It's on the cover of the American Scientist. Um, it's in the Smithsonian Magazine. That's where, what this is, it's Smithsonian Magazine. It shows up everywhere. And it becomes a kind of emblem across the 1980s of archival crisis, which I find quite funny because it's a totally ironic photograph. It's a farce, it's a fiction. Books do not dramatically detonate like that. There are no books in the library right now just exploding into dust, crumbling away. That's not happening right now. In fact, in order to make the photograph, Peter Waters had to crumble up a piece of paper, blow on it, and then Okamoto had to take the photograph over and over and over again to get the perfect one when the fragments just like perfectly flew into this constellation. And of course, there's a double irony here because he's the head conservator of the Library of Congress, right? So he's destroying the very materials that he's supposed to be saving in this photo. Engineering a fictive crisis is what, these, what they're doing together here, he and the photographer. 
And in engineering this crisis, they're taking something that's supposed to signify catastrophe and supposed to elicit fear for us about what's going to happen to archives, what's going to happen to libraries, and they turn it into something that I think is quite beautiful and full of wonder, right? This is a really curious artifact, and I think that's why it circulates so much in the 1980s, in fact. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with the state of the book today or how we encounter the book today? I want to say two things about the photograph. Um, the first is that the photograph reminds us that the idea of crisis is itself historical. It's something that's constantly changing over time. So here we are in the 1980s, the very moment that personal computing is taking off, the very moment that access to the internet is expanding, the very moment that TEI, the Text Encoding Initiative, is starting up. And we have here a photograph which shows us an entire kind of discourse around it that shows us that the threat that they saw in the 1980s was not digital threatening print, it was paper. Paper was the threat to them, right? So we could pick any moment in history and find a similar relationship to a crisis in the book. We could go back to 1890. Uh, an essay I teach from 1890 is by a French bibliophile named Octave Uzan. It's called The End of Books. And in it, he's listening to recorded sound. He's hearing the first phonographs, the first recorded sound that humans ever heard in history. And as he hears it, he thinks, oh my god, this is going to kill off the printed word. And he writes a story called The End of Books, where he imagines books becoming audiobooks, libraries becoming phonographotechs, right? So he comes up with this whole vocabulary for how print is going to die. We could move forward four decades into 1930 when the avant-garde artist, American artist Bob Brown was watching the rise of the talkies, right? So we have movies come out, then we have movies with sound come out called the talkies. And with the talkies, he thought, okay, we're innovating in terms of audiovisual art. We haven't innovated in terms of the printed word. How can we do that? And he invents a machine called the Reedies. And the Reedies machine is supposed to advance the printed word and really kill off the book. So he's kind of an activist militating for the death of the book. We can move forward to the 1980s. We can move forward to 1990 with Robert Coover in the New York Times predicting the end of books and hypertext. But the point here is that one of the most important things that book historians could be doing today in the wake of digital media in response to Andrew's question here as we stage our own encounters with books is to historicize every aspect of the conversation about publishing, about printing, about the materiality of the codex, and about the crisis that it seems to be uh, causing. Okay, so the second thing, within this long genealogy of, of the crisis of the book, this kind of ongoing, constant uh, ongoing and constant crisis of the book, we could read this photograph. But we could also read it as an allegory. The idea of what a book is, or what an archive is, or what a collection is, many of these concepts are in the process of being fragmented and dispersed, right? They're being centrifugally pushed outward into new realms. So, when we're asked how we encounter the codex today then, again, responding to this prompt here, I would say that we do so from within a fragmented field where the center is no longer centripetally holding, right? We feel this in so many ways in our departments and our institutions. But in some ways, this is how it has always been. There has never been a static book. There has never been a static codex. There has never been a static digital book. Many of the books I study in the 17th century, which I might talk about a little bit later, um, are cut and paste from other books. And we just are starting to see them now because the digital has encouraged us to see remix as something that we can find in the past, right? Benjamin says that the light of the present is what illuminates the past, and the past can in turn reflect back on the present. So we see new things in this kind of dialectical movement. So this is how it's always been. And I want to say um, one thing. I, d I hate to be the person who's like, and Derrida says. <laughs> but Derrida has a fabulous little essay that I think we, sh we should return to called The Book to Come. Um, it's now found in paper machines, but it was a lecture originally. And he makes this point in, in it. He says that the thing of the book is simply the tension between gathering and dispersal. That is, books in all media, print, digital or otherwise, are attempts to gather knowledge together, to bring it back together, in way, even as it is always under the kind of imminent threat of its death or destruction or dispersal. The book just simply is the thing that gathers together. So, if, so what I like about what this essay is doing is it's giving us a meta vocabulary that pushes us beyond the kind of medium or material substrate to a bigger conversation between what books and other media do. 
the book is a gathering together. It's, it's a shared vocabulary. So I often teach this essay and then I ask students to come up with their own vector. What would you say is the tension in books today? And they say things like open versus closed, right? And that's an interesting thing that we could, we could, uh, we could, we could work more towards these kind of shared vocabularies. So I think I'll understand, I'll, I'll stop there and let uh, Andrew give his response. Thank you so much for listening. Great. Um, <clears throat> so uh, coincidentally, but, but happily, I also start with an object from the 1980s. And I think what I have to say will, will hopefully really resonate in a really nice way with, um, with Whitney's comments. Um, so I'll just sort of dive, dive in. Um, I want to start um, first, I think, just by reading in full uh, an advertisement that appeared in 1983 for the following year's meeting of the Shakespeare Association of America, uh, the SA. Um, so it reads, calling all computer users. Computers will take center stage at the 1984 meeting of the SAA in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The trustees plan to have a panel of experts discuss present and future uses of computers in Shakespeare studies, as well as several computer exhibitions and demonstrations running throughout the meeting. All members currently working with computers, especially in programs other than simple word processing or data storage and retrieval, are urged to fill out the form provided to report the nature of their research. <clears throat> Suggestions for panelists and offers of appropriate demonstrations, even sales or exchanges of floppy disks, uh, will be most welcome. <laughs> I really like that last part. <laughs> so, you know, with the exception of a few notable uh, anachronisms, I think this call would not be too far out of place uh, actually in the 2019 conference program for the SAA, uh, which now runs a digital exhibit section uh, every year. Um, perhaps more surprisingly, though, this was not the first time that the organization had sought out all computer users. Uh, as the scholar Eric Johnson recently pointed out on Twitter, uh, a panel titled Shakespeare and the Computer was part of the lineup for the very first SAA uh, meeting in 1973. Um, you know, at that point, by way of reminder, uh, the earliest personal computers um, that you could sort of use at home as a non-expert really would only debut the following year in 17, uh, 1974. Um, so, you know, at this earlier historical moment, uh, computer didn't really means something that you can imagine having uh, in your home or in your faculty office, for that matter. <clears throat> um. There were some substantial changes to that fact over the following decades. Uh, to put it mildly, we all have uh, computers in our pants pocket probably <laughs> uh, at this point. Um, and, and even just after 10 years, something had changed pretty drastically. Um, a presidential uh, report bulletin circulated before the 1984 SAA meeting begins, quote, I am writing this presidential report on a K-Pro2 microcomputer equipped with a CPM operating system and a silver reed daisy wheel printer. This commonplace act demonstrates how much the lives of humanistic scholars have already been touched by the information revolution. Uh, the letter continues, uh, quote, Western society became a print culture in the 16th century. At the end of the 20th, it is rapidly becoming an electronic culture. The future belongs increasingly to images and speech. Shakespeare would not be disturbed by this. His art begins in images and speech. Um, so this bulletin, which I also love, uh, was authored by the scholar and uh, Folger Shakespeare Library director, O.B. Hardison. Um, he begins in a sort of sanguine mood. He seems very hopeful about the promise of, of technology. Um, as it continues, though, the tone becomes more foreboding and more prophetic uh, of later debates. Hardison describes that computers ultimately, quote, tend to emphasize information rather than images and speech. They are ideally suited for data banks, bibliographies, linguistic studies, vocabulary and image analysis, and collections of facts about everything from alchemy to zippers. The results are dazzling. Unfortunately, it is an occupational hazard of scholarship to be dazzled by information. Uh, he goes on, if we are going to exercise the leadership which Shakespeare has conferred on us, we must do everything we can to make sure the information so plentifully manufactured by our computers is used to serve the humanities, not to bury them. Uh, and I think we have to read that uh, paraphrase of Julius Caesar in the final line as intentional, uh, given the author. Um, the letter ends with uh, what, what I think is a sort of clarion call. He says, we need to assert and reassert that we are not in the business of compiling data banks, but in the business of mediating between human beings and human creations. That is the same thing as telling our students that we and they are different from dumb terminals. It is to contribute our best energies to keeping humanity at the center of the humanities curriculum. Um, so forgive me for, for sort of quoting at length, um, but I went digging through this recent history as a way of exploring how my own area of expertise, um, which is in early modern studies and especially in Shakespeare studies, um, relates to this topic of tonight's panel, um, the sort of intersection between BH and DH, as, as Whitney put it. 
Um, anyone who has been gripped by even a passing interest in DH will recognize many of the tropes from Hardison's letter uh, in more recent discussions about the role of DH in the university. Um, there is the starry-eyed techno-optimism of the opening sentence. Uh, there is an extended comparison between the print revolution and the digital revolution, in which the radical changes introduced by computing make the formerly familiar technology of print seem newly strange. But there is also presumed opposition or tension between uh, Hardison's dumb terminals and human beings and human creations, which are here presumed to be the proper medium and object of study in the humanities curriculum. Uh, recent issues of academic journals, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and lively Twitter conversations can testify uh, that this tension is one that remains to some extent unresolved within DH and across the profession at large, um, especially at a moment when digital technologies and disruptive innovation in higher ed often seem to go hand in hand. Uh, I think it's a tension that's worth keeping in mind and examining. Um, the conversation, of course, by no means ends here, um, and I hope we'll have the chance to explore the more sort of productive, less doomsaying side uh, of digital scholarship uh, in, the, in the conversation. Um, but I want to just end by suggesting that there are nonetheless a few things that we can take away uh, from this, this set of objects uh, that will help flesh out the discussion. <clears throat> The first uh, is the fact that, um, as Whitney also pointed out, under the earlier name of humanities computing, the digital humanities are older than many of us tend to think or remember. Um, in fact, Yale hosted one of the first academic conferences on humanities computing uh, way back in the 1960s, uh, which Kathy maybe can say a little more about <laughs> in the course of our discussion. Um, Secondly, humanities computing and DH have often been rooted in precisely the kinds of methods and research questions that have characterized bibliography in the history of the book. Um, these include, obviously, bibliographies and linguistic studies, but it also extends to textual editing, collation, and mapping the activities of various participants in Robert Darnton's communication circuit. Um, that is, the papermakers, printers, boatmen, and booksellers who enabled printed materials to circulate in the first place. Uh, and thirdly, as Hardison's comparison of the emergence of print to the advent of the PC suggests, these new digital technologies have encouraged us to see more familiar ones like print in novel and surprising ways. Recent work by scholars like Lisa Gittleman has shown that we, what we now call print was itself a heterogeneous, shifting form, which has only come, you know, I think partly inaccurately, to seem stable and monolithic in retrospect. At the same time, the emergence of the digital has not resulted in the death of the book, I agree, or of print, uh, but in their expansion uh, and in a thoughtful re-examination of the qualities that have defined them at various moments in history. Uh, there's an intriguing parallel here with the fact that, uh, as Peter Stellybrass has demonstrated, print did not supersede or stamp out manuscript writing, but rather created new contexts in which it could flourish, uh, printed forms, receipts, almanacs, and so on. After all, Hardison's meticulously described silver reed daisy wheel printer is just an adaptation of a printing device previously used in electronic typewriters, uh, which themselves uh, incorporate features from even earlier printing methods to create a complexly layered media history. Um, so I'll end there, I think, too, and we can open this up. First of all, let's thank our panelists for that. <clears throat> um, that was a wonderful place. Um, to start, and it's terrifically unanticipated that you would both start with this 1980s moment and take us through the history. And what I really like about putting your talks together is that we do have this balance, as Andrew started talking about um, towards the end of his statement, about this techno-optimism over what we can do with digital media that we perhaps couldn't do, although th that might be uh, debatable, what we couldn't do before with texts. And then, um, as Winnie's paper took us to this concern, on the other hand, um, over what it means for the materials that we might seemingly be abandoning um, or leaving behind. And so in thinking about the moment where we are now and where um, sort of humanities computing has evolved or digital capabilities have evolved, um, what is kind of the tech, like what is the place of the text with digital media? What affordances do um, digital technologies offer us for engaging both with the printed text, but also with a new kind of text? Um, yeah, well, so um, on the one hand, there's there's been a ton of work on digital editing, and I think much of it quite successful, right? I mean, we had, um, we had all these theoretical challenges to the new bibliography in the 80s and 90s. We had 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, you know, one, one prominent example, D.F. McKenzie and, and Jerome McGann talking about sociologies of the text, right? So we no longer think of text in terms of single authors, but we see text as networks of different agents and trying to track those agents. Um, 
And in the wake of that, you had a lot of digital editing projects like McGann's Rossetti Archive uh, and hypertext editions that attempted to kind of uh, practically impose the theoretical challenges. And I think a lot of those were really um, successful. They were experimental, but quite successful in showing what the new medium could do in terms of in terms of editing and how it really folded then back onto editorial principles and practices. Um, in terms of where I'd like to, like, you know, that's one thing that's happened that's really good. Where I think we need to get a little bit better, maybe, is on the material tech side of what we're doing with things digitally, right? So we, we're really good at taking text and sharing how they're variant and marking them up in ways that you can visualize the variance between them. But to do that editorially is still a text-based practice, right? So what do we do with facsimiles? Well, we just disaggregate the book, produce these series of pages, dump them on some website that creates an infinite scroll and say that we've digitized the book. And that's not really the case. So I'm really excited by projects that are starting to think about the material text side of, of producing, uh, uh, of how we present uh, uh, books online. Um, one project I'll mention, um, Digital Mappa uh, by uh, Martin Foyes at University of Wisconsin-Madison is a really great example of what you can do when you think about, um, when you think about the visual and the verbal together and you try to link facsimiles and layer facsimiles with, with textual information. Um, and in the, the app that I've been working on with Liza Daly, Manicule, we try to do the same thing. So it's a, basically a simple web browser um, where you can look at a book in the way that you would at the Internet Archive, but you can layer a tour atop that book. So the idea here is that if you have an idiosyncratic, unusual material artifact, you might not want to edit the text of it, but you might want to point out interesting features of it. So you can visualize the collation formula in a way that's very clear how, how the page is linked together, and you can layer it with a tour. So uh, I don't know that either of those are like the solution, but I want to start thinking more about the facsimile in digital spaces. I mean, just um, build on that. I mean, I think um, uh, alongside um, what you're suggesting, Whitney, all of which sounds really great. I mean, I think um, one thing is that I'm really interested in is rethinking sort of like what what is. You know, I posited that there's sort of historically been a relationship between textual editing and bibliography, and what DH has is been sort of good at. You know, and in some ways are um, I think seen as natural bedfellows, and that might. Um, blind us to the fact that they could be used sort of um, at odds with each other in really creative and interesting ways. So um, I'll also uh, plug a project that I think is really good, which is Alan Gailey's um, Visualizing Variation. Um, he's at the University of Toronto. Um, and partly what he's trying to do is to take these questions of um, you know, comparing multiple copies or multiple editions of a text, you know, doing, doing collation, you know, this very kind of old school um, bibliographical task, um, and thinking about how to uh, visualize those books, you know, with an attention to materiality, and also also with an attention to the fact that those digitized versions of books are remediations, that there's a way to take that not as a kind of neutral presentation of the actual object, but to understand that this is a representation that has been mediated, mediated in a certain kind of way. Um, and the way that he achieves that basically is to um, offer all of these sort of like slightly quirky or oddball ways of visualizing changes. So you can kind of like animate in a, this flickering kind of array um, the different textual readings on a given page. Um, so almost like a sort of old school Hinman collator or something like that, right? But um, rather than you know really trying to answer directly questions of textual editing, um, thinking about how um, visualization and facsimile can themselves be like tools for critical thinking and um, you know engaging theoretically with like some of the basic um, tenets of, of textual editing um, so yeah um, that's making me think about uh, the fact that for some of these digital platforms um, even if you're not creating them yourself sometimes just the act of interpreting them um, it's a bit of a learning curve especially depending on um, how the researcher um, did or didn't make transparent the work that went into the creation of it and all that work that does take place in digitizing a print text. Um, you know, whether or not you do have something like optical character recognition run through it so that way you can actually search it. Um, did you change, like, is the sizing of it lost? I'll never forget the first time that I saw the National Era for Uncle Tom's Cabin and realized it was this gigantic paper and not like a small book. Um, and so I'm just wondering what. What are the ways that we can help with that learning curve um, as both producers of it, and what are the ways that we can help people um, be consumers of represented, remediated text online? 
Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, or where that work needs to happen is in how we teach bibliography and book history. We still don't have a good, um, we still don't have a manual of digital bibliography or book history. Um, somebody needs to write one. <laughs> I, I keep awaiting somebody writing this. Um, and if it doesn't happen soon, I'm going to have to do it myself. Um, but I think it's important that we understand uh, how facsimiles represent things. I think we need to teach that alongside of looking at the physical book. Um, I think we need to teach TEI alongside HTML in classes on digital humanities. Um, and I think we also need to teach how each of these things are remediations, which is something I think Alan Gailey's work does really well. Right, All of his essays attend really, really carefully to how um, different forms put different pressure on, on texts. Um, not sure if that fully addressed your question, but. Yeah, I mean, uh, just add a little to that. I mean, I'm speaking here as the sort of resident um, graduate student. I'll just you know agree broadly. I think with what you're saying, which is that um, uh, you know so many of these tools are so fantastic. One one immediate question that comes up as a student is sort of um, you they may provide you with a sort of window to start to think critically about certain questions that are that are really interesting for for dissertation research for other types of research. Um, I this this is only to confirm I think what you're saying about the need to teach digital bibliography in a more systematic way, which is that you know I. I, even as somebody who's very interested in these things, I don't necessarily have a clear sense of how I would begin to incorporate those insights, you know, meaningfully and legibly um, into something like a seminar paper. Um, and that's that's obviously a big practical kind of um, uh, stumbling block um, for anything, you know, uh, of this kind of work. I mean, you know, if you were doing traditional bibliography, there'd be a way, a recognized way of going down, you know, downstairs in this building, um, gleaning some bibliographical details um, from a text, writing out a collation formula, you know, depending on the course, um, and being able to get credit for that and have that acknowledged, um, right? Um, and so, you know, even though it's arguably within English departments, maybe in other um, humanities departments, book history itself isn't even traditional book history isn't that widely taught. Um, so adding the digital layer, I think, only complicates things, but in a potentially like really productive way. Um, we could maybe see it, um, if I could just jump in. Um, we could maybe see that as continuous with what's happening in media studies. And I think we could form, you know, and again, in this kind of idea of us being more and more fragmented and feeling dispersed in various ways, we're also forming new constellations, right? And one of the ones that's really exciting to me right now is book history, bibliography, and its relationship to media studies um, and digital literature and people who study digital literature. Um, so for instance, instance, there's a new lab at University of Maryland, Book Lab, run by Carrie Krauss and Matt Kirschenbaum, just opened last year, um, where they are taking the kind of, they used to have a petting zoo at their digital humanities lab of different uh, early computers. Uh, they called it the petting zoo, because you'd go and you'd play with these early computers. Um, take that and put it in a lab alongside, letter, alongside letterpress printing and, and other things, so that we can see, start to see text technologies, the actual material hardware, as being somehow kind of on a continuum. Um, I know Nick Mott who's a digital poet is starting, he has a, a press now called Bad Quartos Press where they do everything from printing on dot matrix printers to letterpress printing zines to uh, writing computational poetry and then letterpress printing that in broadsides, right? So it's this kind of, you know, mixing together of all these different technologies that I think, I think is really, really fruitful and might be a place where we could start to do some of that, that teaching and learning um, together. For some of that to take place, what kind of institutional support is required? Thinking more about humanities as lab, as having lab-based work, um, which I think you could probably speak really, really well to better than I, better than I could. But um, uh, you know, the special collections as it as it works at UPenn is certainly a, a lab-type space, right? But we don't call it a humanities lab. So, so w what does it mean to think about um, what's happening in rare book rooms alongside what's happening in digital humanities labs, alongside what's happening in these media archaeology labs, um, as being somehow kind of sharing a certain kind of practice? Um, and, and there's a, there is a book that's being um, done by Laurie Emerson on, on, called The Lab Book, where they're going around and interviewing ethnographically different labs. And I think this will help us do the work of understanding what humanities labs are and will be um, in, in, in the future. And that might tie in, too, to what Andrew was saying about um, you know, getting credit for seminar papers and work, but also then getting credit for collaborative authorship and scholarship um, as a new model and how that gets worked out. I know both the Modern Language Association and the American Historical Association are working out, um, but it still seems kind of random on whether or not you have to maintain your traditional work alongside your digital humanities work or not. And so um, that's always a challenge. <laughs> But with that, um, we're happy to open it for questions now if there are anything um, anyone would like to ask.
Yeah, I think the sciences could be an interesting place to look for, um, I think what we do is very different from what they do in the sciences in many ways, but it could be an interesting place to look for um, to look for analogs of this. Um, I did my master's degree at MIT and as like a humanist working on media surrounded by scientists who work in labs. And it was always crazy to me that like, so the when they start a lab, they need, you know, $100,000 to start up a, a lab because they're, you know, they're running water into it. They've got specialized machinery. We don't need that much, right? Like it should be a lot easier to be arguing for and like getting what we, we need. Um, but we could look to how they advocate for themselves maybe as a as a way to advocate for the humanities a little bit more in an age of precarity. Do you have a specific example in mind that you're thinking of? Yeah, absolutely, and there are a lot of interesting experiments with this. Um, so down a uh, few miles down the road at, in uh, at Brown, there's um, they they had a cave, a VR cave um, that John Cayley and some other digital poets would write, you know, texts in, and you'd have to go in and with a wand and you know, uh, you know, play with the text. Um, all that stuff hasn't really taken off. Like that, we still read. I mean, I'm using my iPad, but like we, st I still read printed books, you know, and like what I read on here is mostly a skeuomorph of a printed book. It's not really like any crazy VR experience. So so I keep, there's been all these very interesting experiments that are on the fringe, but I don't see that replacing how how we read anytime soon. Um, I don't know if what you think. I'm not, that's, that is true, but I'm, I'm that is true, but I also, you know, I, I know 17 year olds and I teach 17 year olds and I give them PDFs and they print them out and, because they want to write on them, right? So, so and they, it drives them crazy that I keep everything on my iPad and write on it. So mm. in some ways we're having a, you know, which is something that Andrew brought up in the prompts, we're having a kind of reinvestment in materiality. Um, you could see this in zine culture, a lot of, you know, people, uh, uh, people that age <laughs> um, tend to want to have physical things, right? I think, and I think in part because of a, a, a sense of loss around that, the resurgence of albums, the resurgence of zine culture, that kind of thing. So I don't, yeah. No, that's, I mean, I think it's a, a really good response. I mean, something just sort of um, from a more sort of like scholarly perspective, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think this takes up another point that you raised earlier too, the, the fact that it is often these sort of, you know, the VR cave, the more kind of like experimental, um, an example that shows up a lot in the, um, scholarly lit literature is the book House of Leaves that some people might have encountered. It's fairly popular, um, which I think is really useful as an illustration for certain ways of thinking about um, the, the weirdness of print, the, the possibilities of print, using the digital to reflect back on print, and to borrow that uh, lovely metaphor from Benjamin. Um, that allows for like some really interesting sort of like reflection of the what the how weird and sort of like surreal the experience of reading the book can be. But there is still, yeah, especially maybe in the classroom, especially with younger students, um, this like resistance to wanting to um, to do what those books sort of claim to be doing, or what scholars claim that they're doing, which is to see the weirdness of reading reading things on an, an iPad, um, and to not just see that as an analog, basically of having it printed out. You know, that that takes a real. Um, adjustment of perspective that I think is hard hard to learn even for like so-called digital natives, the 17-year-olds, right? It's a curious thing to think about though what potential VR could offer for reading. Um, Andrew had mentioned um, when he was referring to the 1980s moment that personal computers weren't yet ubiquitous so some of this stuff couldn't happen and I think that's where we are with VR now which is that a lot of virtual reality technologies are prohibitive um, for kind of everyday personal use. Um, certainly like in the cave model, um, it's really expensive to have those um, running. But if we one day reach a day, and I think Google's been pushing us in that direction with their Google Glass cardboard people can get, um, that maybe when it does become easier to have um, some virtual reality 
hookups in your own house, um, what that might open up for people. Um, particularly, like I can think of, I can imagine a space where you have you know pages all around you, and maybe it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure reading in a 3D immersive way that um, might be one way that it could be reimagined. several of these things together from the picture of Peter Waters and the disintegrating piece of uh, uh, lignin containing wood pulp paper and uh, the question of the archival nature of it, the question of the digital. I was in an online symposium in 2002, I believe it was, called Text E-X-T hyphen the letter E, because it was centered in France, the Institut Nicole and Bibliothèque Centre Pompidou. And Centre Pompidou published a book only in French, uh, although supposing it was English, French, and Italian. And many of the questions that you're discussing were discussed, and I hear them repeated over and over again in discussions, uh, with no reference to Robert Danton, who was, was part of that. And it was a really phenomenal, it took a year, that symposium. Uh, to take place, and because it, it was done in um, sort of in real time, but everyone putting in their comments and all that in terms of paper. Uh, you don't see it much anymore because it disintegrated uh, because uh, the funding ran out. You're talking about institutional support, and that website went down. That was up for over a decade. Now you can get some of it by going into the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive, but not all of it. And uh, so I think there's one of those issues when you talk about digitizing and presenting material that way. Uh, it's just as, if not more, capable of loss than, uh, than it is the paper that's disintegrated. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, another book that somebody in this room needs to write is uh, a history of these things because I think that part of the reason that we um, we don't uh, many people don't know about how much people have been thinking about digital textuality in different experimental forums and spaces for a really long time, and also experimenting with new forms of the book. I was in a uh, I was at a forum like last summer, um, and Siegfried Zielinski was talking, who's a media a German media theorist, and he he mentioned a hypertext experiment that he had done with his scholarship in the 80s. You know, Derrida's writing Gla earlier than that. So I, I feel like you know there there's a long history of people. Um, trying to produce the VR textuality of different eras, but we don't have a history of it, so it, it, it occludes a lot of it is one thing. But um, the other thing is digital preservation is a, is a huge issue right now, and we're just starting to think about how we can save those websites. And it, within the realm of digital preservation, there's the increasing problem of, of algorithms. How do we, you know, preserving a website in some ways is quite simple if it's a static HTML site or a forum that has a series of kind of relatively static sites that are linked together. But once you get to kind of everyone engaging with an internet that is their own internet because it's entirely determined based on your personal searches because Google's tracking those searches and knows that this is my machine and it's going to give me ads based on those searches, right? Then what we're talking about is preserving a history that's constantly just coming into being for every one of us individually. And we're, there's, there are active debates going on about how do we save that? How much do we want to save. We can't save everything, right? Do we just record it all? Yeah, I don't know. I have a follow-up question to that, um, because I love the way you started your comments talking about pictures crisis, right, mm -hmm. with the brittle paper, and I'm wondering about um, dynamic media and yeah. all the rhetoric that's going on right now about obsolescence of playback equipment in the 10 years before we lose it all, and that connects not only with the digitization of this analog media, but Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a really great question, and I don't know if Andrew, if you have something to say on that too. Um, but I'll just say really quickly. I, so um, it's it is a it's a real crisis in the sense that we're going to have to restructure the institutions we inhabit to ingest a lot of these materials and preserve and care for them over time. Um, and we're all, not just going to have to change how we bring them into these spaces, but we're going to have to change how we think about preserving them within those spaces, conserving them within those spaces, and then on the other end, we're going to have to think about changing how readers interact with them in these spaces because the reading room is not very well suited for interacting with an audiovisual document necessarily, right? Um, so, which is all just to say there are people better placed in this room to respond to that, but it is going to be an institutional restructuring, so we do have to take it as a, maybe not crisis, but an important thing to think about, you know, in this physical space even. Yeah, I'll pick up the, the sort of broader question, which is about the relationship of book history to, to media history. And in that, I'm thinking about that, I've been really sort of um, guided and inspired by, by Matt Kirschenbaum's um, comment where he basically says, you know, book, book history in the current moment really is media history and that these things are, are um, cannot be disentangled in some kind of way. And so I, I would echo, you know, your call to think about media studies, think about media archaeology, you know, the way that different layers of media kind of coexist in this sort of palimpsestic way. I mean, um, the example that he's thinking about partly is how, um, you know, another sort of conservation question is the one of um, born digital texts, the question of working with um, not just authors' papers, but authors' PCs and hard drives and all of the issues that that raises. Um, but even more generally, um, you know, a print book that is produced by whether a university press or a sort of mass market press um, uh, is deeply imbricated with all of these other sort of things that we would acknowledge as, as media history. You know, and we all know this from the experience of working with page proofs, with PDFs, all of these other things. And so there's a way in which um, no book, certainly no book that's produced in the current moment, um, is sort of free of those like larger questions that media history prompts us to ask. And I also think it's productive to, to allow that to reflect backwards, to kind of pick up that metaphor again. Even with books, are, do we need to save the ebook? Like, do we need to save the ebook of every book that's printed today? Mm. We probably should, right? But are we doing that? No, because we consider the printed book to be the artifact of record. Um, so even within traditional books, you know, books are files now, as, as Matt Kirschenbaum says. How do we save those files? And I can say for the Yale context, um, with digital preservation to the question of how are we saving files, Yale Library's in the process of thinking through emulation as a service, and so that way you're not just preserving the content, but you're also preserving the environment in which that content appeared. So if it matters that you're able to, you know, still view, um, you know, Clippy for Microsoft Word and um, have this experience of what it was like in the 1990s on a computer, um, or you see like your flash file and you weren't able to run it uh, on a modern machine, that's something that the library is thinking a lot about how to offer that widely as a service. Thank you. Thanks for a great panel. It's really fascinating. And I, I think that the notion of giving a bigger history is really important because also if you look at things like the Gutenberg Bible, it's always been most people are never going to get access to that. In other words, just because of its value, it doesn't matter who the institution has it. Your actual physical access to it is prohibited. Um, you know, so it's prohibited even to the majority of scholars. In other words, you, you, you're one scholar in a million if you can actually get access to 10, 10 Gutenberg Bibles. So the history of surrogates is a very long history. People have always dealt with surrogates. Keats has a surrogate of the, of the um, first folio. You know, so it's a facsimile, it's a reprint, but it's actually a facsimile reprint. And so, you know, people claim that we've edited Montaigne. They're all lying. <laughs> they couldn't, they weren't allowed to. They, 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 to see the actual uh, border of coffee, you were allowed in for a day, if that, you know. And so what they were all using was, a, was a, 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 these 1900 photographs that had been taken of them, so that's how it was edited. So there's a kind of way in which I think we've always got this notion of the real thing. And so two things I just say about the real thing is that when you, I think we sometimes have a naive notion that if you've got the material objects, we're doing something materially with it. But most of the time we're not. You know, most of the time we're reading a book and just, you know, we're, we're just reading a book. And most of the time I do that, I don't look at the paper. But if you actually, and there it seems to be one of the aspects of digital humanities is to, change the range of how we might perceive things. In other words, it, it, the very fact that it is transforming the objects, and an obvious example of that is the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they, every photograph that, that, that is put on the web is a composite photograph 
can actually see the animal skin, you can actually get the, you know, you can totally lose the text. Um, so you can go back and forth, but it requires very, very high, so it's the latest technology for creating something that you actually can't see with the naked eye. So it's not something that's in the naked eye. And that would also be true of the, um, the other thing they've done, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that these ones that are burnt, um, right, yeah. they've actually learned how to read through them without unscrolling them. So mm -hmm. they've not unscrolled them, so you can't see them. But you can read them, because <laughs> the actual technology has allowed you to go through them. And the same is true of the Archimedes Palimpsest project, yeah. which again, you know, goes through layers of Palimpsest using nuclear technologies. To, without being invasive at all, mm -hmm. or if they decided that they would keep even the forgeries, they've got a forged level, or 20th century forgeries, but that's been preserved. And you can read every level of them uh, as you go down. So I think these are things you, you can't do with the naked eyes. Mm -hmm. so, so I think one of the things, and one of, I thought the most brilliant statements from Jim Green, the librarian of the library company, he said, we need the original object to keep redigitizing. Mm. <laughs> Literally, we're going to have technologies that allow us to do things you couldn't possibly you know, do just by looking at the book. Yeah. No. Uh, and that's happening all the time now. So in a way, I think we, we are working with increasingly with scientists, increasingly <coughs> collaboration, with larger collaborations, that will realize what a kind of complicated thing a book is. And, you know, in a way that perhaps we haven't done before. And that it's the digitizing that na enables us and illuminates things that you literally can't see with the naked eye. Right? Not necessarily because you can't in itself, but because we're trained to read in a certain way. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of hidebound to think what reading is, is you sit down and look at black marks on a page. And there I think children are very interesting because children don't have that. They, they're often at a beginning process, so you can see they take in more. You know, they, that's why they like all the pictures. If they like, my grandson like dinosaurs that leap off the page. <laughs> No, I think that's a fantastic point. Um, yeah, and the book is a constellation of all the remediations of, that have existed of it over time. I mean, we, we before that we had microfilming projects. I mean, this is this is the question though, or the fear behind that is like, okay, there was mass microfilming, and we thought that then we had, you know, the record of the thing, and now we're digitizing. And as Jim Green says, we're going to have to keep digitizing over and over again. So maybe maybe the turn, maybe there's a mental turn that needs to happen where we embrace that is what I'm kind of hearing you say in some ways, and and then um, think about like the even even just a, a, a catalog record as being a, a record of the different ways this thing has been remediated that you can interact with it, right? Like that might be some, somewhere where we're petted or, yeah. And the comment makes me think too about, because um, it's super exciting that you can read a scroll without unrolling it. And that's something that even people who aren't necessarily super invested disciplinarily in that question get really excited about too. And so I'm wondering um, to throw in another PH to our BH and DH, um, where public humanities might fit in with this in terms of um, opportunities for engaging broader audiences. That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's, uh, maybe I'll draw from experience um, doing some curation here at the Beinecke recently, but I mean, I think it's, um, it's interesting in that, um, uh, you know, we are so interested in the, um, in these sort of questions of like how, you know, how do these 30 photographs of the Dead Sea Scrolls allow us to see things that we couldn't see? But I think, um, you know, both we as scholars and maybe the general public are really interested in just being able to read read the scroll that you can't unroll, being able to read all the layers of the palimpsest. Um, there is still this desire to sort of like, um, you know, to, to you know, as we talked about with the with the students, you know, there's a there are certain kind of like inbuilt or learned um, ways of engaging with textuality um, that that students or or the public are really are really attached to. Um, and the question is like, how do we both, um, you know, sort of work with that, honor that, um, like be engaged with that interest while also kind of prompting a more sort of like sophisticated um, understanding of the media um, that they're looking at. I mean, I. Um, 
even just in a sort of routine course that's not really at all to do with um, book history and digital humanities, I'll give my students um, you know, seven, early 17th century texts in a sort of early English books online facsimile um, and do little you know, exercises where I say, like, let's look at the title page. You know, what do you see? What can you learn about the text um, you know, before even getting into the, the mess of the, the language itself and the long S's in the middle of words and all these other sort of things that I'm you know, inured to but that they've yet to learn. Um, and it, it really is, they're surprisingly sort of resistant. Um, they want to read right past um, those layers of remediation and extract the meaning. You know? and so the first thing that they say is, well, I know who the author is. I know who the, um, the publisher is or whatever. Um, and it can take a whole class, really, to, to get them to think about those things. Um, and so you know, I've ended up sort of talking more about the classroom, I guess, but I think some of that might still hold true um, for, for thinking about the, the general public. You know, they, want, they want these texts to be meaningful in, in some kind of way. Um, yeah more to say. Yeah, well, you know, your point's making me think about how the digital um, really affords us the opportunity in some ways to control the kinds of engagement with the text. So how you mentioned that students just want to read past the layers of remediation. Depending how you've architected your site, you could actually like force them to have to get through something before going on now that has the disadvantage of, um, you know, they can just go to a different website if yours ends up being too difficult to use. But it uh, creates an interesting possibility for um, giving some of that context up front. Are there any additional questions from the audience? There's a hand. Oh, yes, please. No, it's very, it's very interesting. I'm just thinking as you're as you're talking about how um, so there there's there are a lot of studies that show that we often remember where things are within a book based on the physical where it lays on the page, right? It's like oh, I want to find that quote. It's on the top left corner of a page, about a third of the way through the codex, right? Um, and that that is uh, we now have had to produce a lot of uh, external memories in order to replicate that in digital spaces, which is the you know saving, sharing putting on your personal notes, tweeting it. Like, there are various ways that we, f we find to, to retain something, um, but, it, but it ends up being fragmented then in digital space. So um, I don't know how that plays out in digital humanities projects necessarily, but I'm intrigued by your question about memory and emulation. To the, that side of it a little bit. I mean, I think it's what I'm struck by is, um, you know, bringing back this um, question of collaboration. I mean, it's it's striking how many sort of like you know explicitly, um, uh, you know, collaborative DH projects I think are sort of trying to replicate something of this same kind of like tactile or deep environment without obviously having the same kind of like, you know, that triggering those same sort of memory centers that we get from the the physical book. You know, so. Um, like a book like Debates in Digital Humanities, any of these, there's like the MLA Commons, I think, allows for certain types of digital publication where you can sort of comment in the margins and create these sort of um, asynchronous, like long-term modes of engagement that are both sort of personal in the sense that you're sort of, na 
navigating them, and memory and experience kind of aggregates in certain places, um, but also it's, it's collaborative, it's public, it's shared, right? And so I think there's certainly a real sort of hunger to try to create that um, collaboratively. I personally also sort of feel that it kind of falls short um, in some kind of way, and, and I also am just reminded of your comment, Whitney, about the, the algorithm. I mean, in some ways, the algorithm remembers what we've seen and where we've been better, much better uh, than we do, right? And so much of our experience of navigating these things is, is um, mediated by that kind of algorithmic um, shaping and, and pushing, especially on like a smartphone where I end up doing you know, more and more a weird kind of amount of my engagement with this stuff. So um, these things are kind of working together, but maybe also in tension. Um, of emulation here too, which is the emulating of the physical. So like, there's the emulators that are on screens where I can go on my laptop and I can play a video. I can play Oregon Trail, right? As I played it when I was eight, and on my laptop you know, or on my iPad right now, right? But it's not the way I played it when I was eight because it's, I wasn't playing it on a MacBook or an iPad, right? So. Um, which I think connects back to this idea that we need to save these machines and keep them in these labs. And a lot of the work that goes on in the, you know, the petting zoo and these places where you go and you interact with old machines is precisely that kind of helping students not remember but kind of know what the physical kind of context was for engaging with the hardware, which is so important. And we have to, we have to save that, I think. Um, one of my favorite things to do is I have a Commodore PET in my office, which is from 1970, I believe. And it's the, one of the first earliest computers. It's all basic. It's you know single. You have to write in BASIC on it to do any kind of command. And I turn it on, and I just ask the students to interact with it. The screen's totally different. The keyboard layout's totally different, right? I mean, they, they, they have to. It looks like a computer, but it's not a computer to them, right? And they have to relearn how to use that kind of thing. Maybe at some point we'll have to be doing that with the codex. I don't know. But like thinking about you know, thinking about uh, the hardware as related to memory is really interesting realm of thought there. I like that. I will just say there's an amazing um, YouTube video where students were asked to work with an old computer and their first challenge was to turn it on and so they had to find the button for it and, and once they find it, it makes kind of a really loud noise that's a bit jarring to them and then their second task was to get on the internet. And so they try opening a browser, but that doesn't work. And so they have to find the little AOL figure and wait for it to run across the screen. And just um, having this experience of, yeah, remembering that, um, again, making visible these layers of mediation before you can get to the text. Like, you have to have your internet provider set up. You have to have all these different things that are um, affecting your access. Wait, we haven't had a question yet on this side. So we'll start with Trina and then work our way left. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a provocative question. Um, so I think part of what I'm hearing, and like a lot of what we're saying, it, to just extrapolating, uh, is that we're in a moment of layers and hybridity, right? So there's no such thing as like a digital age, a print age, and then it stops, and then we're in the digital age, right? It's always layered. But but of course, print was layered with manuscript, right, and different modes of thinking about things. So. Um, I think that uh, as opposed to thinking about ages that determine certain things, I think it helps to think in terms of epistemes in this kind of more Foucauldian way where it's like we, we're constantly engaging with things that are coming into being and then also fading away. Right now, right now, what's coming into being is a little bit unknown, but it has to do with digitality and how we interact with the internet and all of its affordances. What's fading away a little bit is the idea that the printed book by which I mean like a print monograph codex is the primary way in which you understand and learn, right? So if that's no longer the primary way, but is one among many other different ways, how is that going to change our, our brains, our memory, other kinds of questions? So um, I think the determinism question might be a little bit of a red herring from that sense, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, just to, to add, I mean, I think it's one thing that I'm struck by is how even the digital is somehow becoming not itself or not just one thing in the same way that, as I think we both suggested, you know, print um, was never just one thing, but is easier to see as not only one thing with the, having the retrospect of the digital to sort of shed that light on it. I mean, just anecdotally, but I've read a number of sort of things recently about, um, you know, students coming into sort of primary school and having a really hard time engaging with computers as the, the slightly older among us would understand them as like, laptops or desktop machines because they're used to tablets and touch screens and smartphones you know from in some cases from very young ages like two or three and so the question is are these meaningfully different forms you know do they are, are each of those things determining us in slightly different ways I mean I think again I think determinism is, is sort of a red herring but um, you know both of these things are at play presumably those students will also learn eventually um, how to, to to use a laptop and then we'll get emails from them <laughs> as instructors right um, but but yeah these things are all kind of at play all together, I think. Yes, well, we actually, we have um, a couple more minutes, and so we should just take one. Absolutely, I, I like that comment a lot. And also, you know, what you're saying in some ways is like we need to think about the books as machines that also determined how we think as well, right? Um, one word that I think is helpful here, you know, so there's the humanism, posthumanism. Another word that I keep turning to recently um, is philology. It's such a fusty, dusty, you know, old word in many ways, but there's um, definitely a return to it that's been happening. I mean, there was a return to it that happened in the 90s, and I think we're doing that again in some ways. Um, philology just meaning the kind of the art of very carefully looking at texts as entangled with machines, materiality, readers, and humans, right? This, the, uh, unpacking the entanglement of all those agencies within a text as, as um, philology is an umbrella term that might encompass book history and digital humanities and lots of these other things. Um, uh, Nietzsche calls philology the art of reading slowly, which I really love, because we need to kind of, and he explicitly, he says it's the leisurely art of the goldsmith applied to, to textuality and language. Like we need to take moments that are slow and careful. Um, and he explicitly opposes that to an age of work where everything's over hurried, right? So it might be something, I mean, I sound a little, a little dusty right now, but it might be something to, to, that we could return to as an umbrella term for, for, for finding a shared kind of path forward in a lot of these different areas. Um, yeah. And just yeah, very quickly. I mean, I think you know, just to I'm struck coming back to the to my Shakespeare Bulletin by O. B. Hardison. I mean, he talks. He wants to set up this binary between dumb terminals and uh, English professors or you know humanities professors whose job is to, as he says, you know, mediate between human beings and human creations. And I think he's so. Um, I don't know if he's he's unaware of the sort of irony there of the potential significance of those words. But I think um, we might imagine a program along the lines you're suggesting as as being you know trying to think beyond the binary that would separate those. 
things as being different. I mean, he's, he's imagining himself as a medium between human beings and human creations. And from our perspective, that sounds something, you know, something sort of post-human, something very machine-like in a way that is productive that allows us to somewhat kind of collapse that, that binary that he's so attached to. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's a terrific note to conclude this portion of events on. Um, after this, we will be going over to the opposite side of the mezzanine for refreshments. But before we do that, please let's thank our panelists one last time. Thank you.